This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton's public school board is concerned that the Ontario election next year will affect its plan for Sir John A. Macdonald High School. The, uh, the board has asked the provincial government for funds to consolidate two schools on the land where Sir John A. sits. And joining us on the line to uh, discuss it is Todd White, board chair and Ward 5 trustee with the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Todd, welcome to the program. Jamie, good morning. Um, so take our listeners back and explain, first of all, uh, what what has happened with uh, Sir John A. and the lands on which that building sits. So in a nutshell, uh, back in uh, 2012, roughly, the board had decided to close the current uh, secondary school, so Sir John A. itself. And uh, it's been a number of years, but... Uh, We've broken ground, and we have the new high school being built uh, on the Scott Park site. So that's uh, really good news. Uh, but in the meantime, this past school year, we reviewed a number of elementary schools in the West Hamilton, Central Hamilton areas. And the decision that we made was to consolidate uh, two elementary schools, one uh, being Hess Street School right across the street uh, on the Sir John A. site. So when that school closes in June 2019, our hope and plan is to build a new JK8 elementary school uh, and community hub on the eight acres on the current Sir John A. site. All right. So, uh, why why the fears that the Ontario election uh, next year, June, it's set for June of uh, 2018? Why would that uh, scuttle any of this? Well, our main objective right now is to create a strong business case for that uh, community hub. And we know that uh, throughout the year, the ministry usually offers one or two major grant opportunities to school boards for projects like this. Um, There is one for sure, and the deadline is early September. The winter one uh, that has been offered in recent years is no longer available. Uh, So there might be something that replaces it, there might not, but we don't want to take chances with that. So what we're doing now is preparing ourselves and getting a business case ready for early September. Uh, so in case there is no further opportunity, we'll be ready to go. But like any public agency, when uh, there's an election, possible change of government, who knows, um, really it's difficult to predict the future. So we don't want to leave anything to chance, and we just want to be ready to go prior to that. It's interesting because I, th- I, th- I think a lot of people m- may have uh, made the assumption that um, you know a changing government really doesn't affect these types of things that they're that you know decisions are, are are made and and things will will move ahead but um i guess a change in government creates a potential change in bureaucracy which at least i suppose creates a hiccup um if not a if not a, a change of decision or, or policy which seems unfortunate in the case of education um i know that's a big education is always a big political football mm-hmm. but, but once it's down to the ground level and decisions have been made, uh, you know, politicians shouldn't be or government shouldn't be going in and, and mucking around with that after the fact. Yeah, and, and it's always it's always ever-changing. Even even year to year with, with current governments, there's always new grants, new opportunities. And that's where, as a board, we just want to make sure that we're prepared. And uh, who, who knows? There could be uh, an election. There could be the same format we've seen for a number of years, although it could be completely different. And that's, once again, where we don't want to take anything for granted and make sure that we're, we're ready and prepared ourselves. But uh, we believe that the business case is rather strong. And the fact that we're able to uh, propose such a, a wide uh, 
uh, vast kind of community hub in in the central downtown area. We're we're absolutely thrilled about that. That that is a possibility at this point. Well, and it makes sense um, from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, obviously, your focus is education, but. Um, you know, look at what's happening in the downtown. Clearly, there's momentum. You know, we had uh, downtown councillor Jason Farr on, on our show earlier this week talking about pop-up uh, parks. Um, there's a lot of uh, redevelopment going on. There's a lot of new money coming on. Sure, there are, there. you know, there's still areas of downtown that don't look like any much is happening, but but that is going to change, the, you know, because we're seeing right in the core lots of uh, positive change, and that's only going to ripple on out, right, uh, to, to the entire uh, downtown area. Well, and, and that's exactly it. And for years, we we lived in the education bubble, and, and other agencies live in their, their bubbles. But really, as of late, we started to look at what's happening in Hamilton and realized we can be part of something. And mm-hmm. with eight acres of property right in the middle of downtown, that could include a number of, of different agencies uh, that could locate to that that area. Uh, there's a number of services. We know it's a very high-needs area for some of the communities around there, and we know that uh, with land that obviously in many cases isn't um, widely available, you know, there's a lot of really, really cool things we can make happen there. So that's where we're at the stage right now where we're asking any uh, partners uh, with capital dollars that may want to build on that site and talk to us. And we're at that stage where we want to start putting together a plan and figuring out some options. Todd, let's uh, let, let's switch gears and, and go over to uh, what is the known most familiarly as the former Scott Park site and, and uh, bring us up to date on what's going on there right now. So a number of months ago, the city broke ground on the new Bernie Morelli Rec Center. And then just a couple months after that, uh, we broke ground on our new secondary school. So that's an absolute amazing design. Um, it's been publicized, but I'm not sure how many folks have seen it. But when you look at that, oh, it's about six or seven acres of property and the way that the city and board has redeveloped it, it's absolutely outstanding. And it really complements and ties into the entire precinct. So it ties into the Tim Hortons field. Uh, also, uh, the uh, Dominion Glass properties to the about a kilometer north that the city owns that will eventually redevelop. That whole precinct is, is it's not done yet, and there's a whole lot to go. But when that uh, entire project's complete, I don't think there's a better place in Hamilton to live. Wait, what, uh, it's, what name is the, the new school going to carry? We haven't decided that yet. We're still kind of calling it the New North or the Scott Park Area School. But uh, probably this year or early the following school year, we'll be naming that school. And we have a pretty exciting public consultation process where we engage folks. So you can probably submit the uh, Jamie West School if you're interested <laughs> I don't, a year from now. <laughs> I, I, I imagine that if that were to happen, it would be shot down <laughs> pretty quickly. Pretty <laughs> Pretty darn uh, quickly. Um, and just while I have you on the line, because um, uh, because we like having you on the line as the public board chair, um, look into your crystal ball and, and uh, to the new school year beginning in September and and tell me what you see as as far as uh, as far as challenges uh, heading into uh, the twenty uh, I guess it's the twenty seventeen twenty eighteen school year uh, as we begin that in September. 
Yeah, yeah, and you kind of scared me while I was on hold. You'd mentioned back to schools happening so quickly. <laughs> I haven't even taken a vacation yet. But uh, <laughs> what we expect uh, to come up this year, um, number one, we have a number of capital projects underway. Um, we have eight new school builds across the entire city of Hamilton. That's unprecedented for, for any board. Um, so a lot of construction underway. We also know when it comes to academics and I mean, that uh, we could do better in the classroom. Uh, our EQAO, EQAO scores in the past, uh, especially this past year, have been low. So we have some pretty rigorous uh, academic targets that we're hoping to meet in the classroom. It's a lot of changes there. Um, and then in addition to that, um, overall, we're, we're trying to always improve our positive culture and well-being within the board. Uh, so a lot of staff engagement, professional development to really turn a corner and, and keep everyone uh, positive and excited about education. Right. E- EQAO, um, is, are we not ga- getting uh, more of an education on that uh, by, um, you know, uh, learned minds across the globe who are saying that, you know, standardized testing is a, just an absolute crock? that it's uh it it needs to end that we need to recognize that different human beings learn differently and we need to actually focus on that and um uh, making sure that people who uh learn differently have the opportunity to do so and everybody at the end presumably ends up educated and doing well yeah and then that's right and that's where EQAO always makes big headlines and and causes a stir but you have to take it as only as only one one uh, uh, snapshot in time of one particular thing you're looking at. And it doesn't take into account a lot of other things that are important in education. You know what what our our children learn in classrooms, the the work of our staff within those buildings. A lot of it isn't reflected there. So you take it with a grain of salt. Of course, it's always relative year to year. So you can't just look at one year and, and make assumptions. You really have to look at the uh, progression. So, yeah, absolutely. Don't don't all <laughs> look at it as the be-all to end-all in education. Right. And, and last but not least, uh, school security uh, seems to be uh, an ongoing discussion, access to to schools. Uh, the we're going wait- we're gonna to microchip our students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you heard that, that preamble. Um, you know, listen, the way parents helicopter these days, uh, I'm sure that a lot of parents would would line up in droves to actually have that done um but but seriously um it, it it's something that both boards seem to pay some attention to i i almost say some lip service to they've got a sort of locked front door policies buzz in policies and security and stuff but but um there seems to be a, a little bit of a, a, a lax when it comes to uh actually uh, adhering to those to those policies, uh, people can get pretty uh, can get access pretty easily to a lot of schools, um, and and I just wonder is is that uh, it, does it make sense to have you know great security protocols and have you know um, all these holes in following them? Yeah, I, I think it's about consistency, like yeah. you pointed out, and figuring out where those holes might exist. There's the odd cases where where yeah, if you're walking into the building and you just like a condo building or an apartment if you you know time your entry right you can follow someone in but it's those type of holes that that we're paying attention to most of our entrances are close to the offices and we want to get any visitors to sign in um but i can tell you plenty of cases where schools you know these days it's kind of like fort knox and as board chair myself (laughs) there's many a time that i'm knocking on windows trying to get in (laughs) get into one of your schools I, i can't get in so 
yeah, there, there. That's always. It's not not a bad thing that I can't just walk in myself in a number of cases. So we appreciate the the security and once again, like you said, consistency is key. Todd White, board chair and uh, Ward Five trustee with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us this morning and uh, answering a few questions as we get ready to uh, start another school year in about a month or so. Uh, it, get some vacation, will you? Go and have yeah, some. Yeah. Go and have some fun and I'm working on it. And we'll grill you again in the fall. No problem. All right. Thanks, a lot, Jamie. Thanks Appreciate for your time. It. Take care. Bye bye. Todd White, uh, board chair with the uh, Hamilton Wentworth District uh, School Board. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML. Joining me on the line is Annie Kidder, executive director of People for Education. Uh, Annie, good to have you back on the show. Good morning. So we're, you know, the question is, how does the summer break affect kids' learning? Research is suggesting that. All play and and no homework can lead to a, a little bit of a bumpy start for the school year. Um, do you agree with that? Oh, I, I'm not even. I don't think research says that exactly. Okay, what um, what, what do you? you you're <laughs> on top of this stuff. What do you know? Play and you know less homework. I think actually play is incredibly important, and there's lots of research that says that. Yeah, and there's I, lots of research that says homework it, it doesn't do much of yeah. anything. So I think the thing about thinking about summer learning loss. Um, is that uh, what the research does show pretty unequivocally is that there's a, a sort of disproportionate impact on some kids. So if you come from a you know fairly well-off family or whatever, you're, uh, then in the summer you are going to camp, you're in programs, you're going camping with your family, you are playing, uh, but you're playing in a kind of enriched environment. Mm-hmm. And that is actually good for your education. And there's very little loss for those kids when they come back to school in September. On the other hand, if your family is really, really struggling to make ends meet, uh, that they can't afford all the fancy schmancy camps and things like that, um, that then what you're not getting is the kind of enrichment from the world, so, right. which actually involves lots of play. Um, but that play is engaging all the parts of your mind that you need to keep on learning. You know, and I think it's a really important part of education that we have to remember. It's not just about the three R's. In fact, the foundational skills are, are underneath those. And that that's what some kids are getting in the summer is that those kind of foundational skills that are not directly involved with school or homework or, you know, doing more math problems. But other kids aren't. So that the summer learning loss isn't happening to all kids at all. It's, but it is happening to some kids. What about, um, what about the idea of changing the, the summer break schedule and going to something like two or three other breaks a year instead of uh, having one long one in the summer? Uh, you know, that, that summer break was born in the tradition of, you know, kids get out and they help on the farm. Uh, that isn't happening in most cases. Do we need to revisit that? Do we need well, to revisit that? I, yeah, and I, in some places they have revisited it. So um, in many other countries, it doesn't work the same way it does in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, it you, The breaks, you go to school for, you know, say six weeks or eight weeks, then you have two or three weeks off so that the whole year is broken up that way. And in that way, you have the opposite of that idea of a kind of uh, the learning loss. In fact, you have relaxation and play in between in regular intervals. 
rules. And, you know, and lots of other countries in the world do it that way, and it seems to work well for them. I don't think there's direct evidence that somehow, for instance, if you compared Canada to any other country, that, that we're suffering from, from not doing it that way. But And there are schools, there are examples of schools in Ontario that have been, you know, it's called year-round schooling, even though, of course, they're not going to school all year. Um, but it's it's a kind of it's an organizational shift that you can imagine. Then um, everybody it's it's kind of easier to plan. Everybody can have their holidays at the same time. Everybody can you know so getting you know pushing it in a new direction um, it takes some uh, some work and sometimes some pushback from families going no 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 well, my kids are all in different schools and they all have to be on the same schedule and it's easier knowing they all have two months off. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's like a lot of things. It's it's traditionally the way we've done it in North America, so it's pretty hard to get things turned around even if even if somebody presents you with evidence that um you should do that or you know, how are you going to get everybody on board that? Um I don't know. We there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of things about the way we live in North America that can be compared to other countries in other parts of the world where they where they seem to have a, a better quality of life, even if they're not chasing every dollar. I know I'm branching off uh, a little bit here. No, 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 but I think that's a really great point, actually, because because you're right about that. So there are other places where, you know, there are, people have more holidays built in, too. They're not working, you know, 8,000 hours a week. Right. And, not. and I, think, I think it is a really good point because... It's part of a whole kind of way of thinking mm-hmm. about whether or not the drive is the important thing or the quality of life is the is is actually more important and more you know do people live longer are they happier do they get along better um, because those are important parts of the quality of life too and in terms of and it, that is affected by your education because you're actually you know you're more likely to feel successful and that you're you know. Um, able to be sort of engaged in the world if you've got a good, strong, solid education. But it has to be broad in that way, and it has to take exactly those things you describe into account. And I think sometimes we, you know, maybe we've gone a little bit too sort of corporate in our thinking about, you know, what are the outcomes, what are the indicators, let's move towards those, and let's all, you know, buckle down and work as hard as... Working hard is good, but <laughs> maybe sometimes we take it too far. Yeah, I'd rather, I think working smart might be the, the, yes. the new, you know, the new uh, mantra that we should adopt. Annie Kidder is my guest, Executive Director of People for Education, and, and while I've got you here, um, I, I, I was talking to Todd White uh, in a segment earlier this morning, who's the, the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Chair, and, and he mentioned... EQAO uh, testing. I, I always like to ask people who are really focused on on education what they think of that. You know, I seem to be reading more and more that th- those standardized tests are absolutely useless when it comes to really understanding whether our kids are doing well or not in terms of getting, you know, gaining education because kids all learn differently. Are, are these just political? barometers that are really aren't benefiting parents or kids? Well, like everything in education, sadly, there's no sort of, you know, absolutely anything. So 
they are useful for some things. The danger is that they start to be used for everything. Mm. So suddenly those scores become the driver of policy on pressure to perform on, you know, everybody's got to, you know, practice the tests for two weeks before you do the test, when really they should be this light little measure. You know, they shouldn't actually have such huge implications. And it is a problem, I would say, in, in Ontario and in many countries that we've gotten so obsessed with our scores, kind of, and with, you know, is the graph going up or is it going down, that we're losing sight of all of those other broad areas of education. And, and, and it is problematic in that way. So for school boards, for instance, you know, if, if you're trying to do, and Hamilton has we always think of Hamilton, this most excellent, amazing place in the world. Um, you know, and there's really incredible work going on um, with all the boards in Hamilton, with the Hamilton Community Foundation. And it is looking at those broader areas of learning and making sure that there's an ability to focus on those. And if we put kind of all our eggs in the, in the EQAO score basket, we lose sight of, and again, it really goes back to your question even about learning loss, about the the richness of learning that we need to make sure all our kids are getting. So it's not that they're absolutely disastrous or absolutely horrible, but we really have to be careful about, and that is the political part, you're right, um, where, you know, parties start to put all of their, they, you know, set targets and go, we're going to get all the scores up to whatever, um, that if that becomes your drive in education, then you do everything you can to move those scores. Yeah, yeah but and we it, may miss other things. And it, and it ties to the, it ties to the overall thinking that we have that we talked about earlier about chasing every dollar instead of focusing on quality of life we're we're keeping score and and most people keep score by income levels yep. you know that's that's the big report card on your success <laughs> in life is how much money you oh, make and yeah yeah me too <laughs> um, but but you know that that's uh, uh, that that's the case so that that's why I you know I thought I, I wonder you know what the people that are paying really close attention to EK, EQAO scores are, are, are seeing or feeling about that uh, as we roll along here and learn more about how brains develop, how kids mm-hmm. learn, and, and all of that. And, and are we even listening if the information is brought forward? On top of that, um, we've got, I, I sense that we have increased pressure on teachers to make sure that they pass kids into the next level. I'm, I'm seeing more and more report cards that look like they've just been cut and pasted. And I think that, I think it's because parents are in there helicoptering and putting a lot of pressure on, on the education system. You better make sure my kid gets a B or an A or whatever. Whereas in the old days, the teachers actually evaluated the kids. And if your kid didn't make it, your kid was held back or went to summer school or got some special help to, um, to, to reach that level. Um, I get the feeling that we're seeing that as somewhat unacceptable in this generation of parents. Am I, am I reading the tea leaves correctly well, I, here? You know, and I, I think it's a little bit of reading of tea leaves, but I also think it's something we need to look at. It's funny because I was just talking to another media person yesterday about exactly that. It's like, is the perception that we have that this is happening more true? Um, is there, you know, great inflation? Are, is the pressure from parents or kids to go, no, 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 I've got to get 90% because I have to go to, you know, wherever, McGill yep. or Western, and, uh, because this is the career I've picked out. And, and we do have to be careful 
all about that. And it is exactly the same as everything else we were, you were talking about. About, I mean, education is incredibly important, absolutely. And now, you know, now it's not enough to graduate from high school. You have to have some post-secondary college or university or apprenticeship um, in order to be able to get a job and, you know, live a, you know, fairly okay life. Um, but we do have to be careful again that if we, and again, it's about narrowness, right? If it's all about marks, yeah, about and especially about marks to do with content knowledge, which aren't actually the thing that are going to allow you to, you know, keep your job, keep on learning. You know, a third of the jobs that are, you know, by the time kids graduate who are in school right now, a third of the jobs that they're going to be looking at don't even exist right now. So it's not like we can train them for those jobs. So that it's not like then getting 90% in whatever is going to make a difference in terms of, and I know it's not all about jobs, but it's partly about that. Well, I think it, yeah. I, 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 think, it is. I think it is, and yeah, I, yeah. I think it I think it should be, and I think it should be about preparing uh, kids for for real life. I, I yeah. again, we're branching off, but they should be teaching. I, I think they should be teaching home economics uh, skills like the old days. I think that they should be teaching kids money management, uh, uh, how to manage money, what the value of uh-huh. money is, and and using that. I'm not seeing that happening but a lot. It's also, the other, I mean, the 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 research, and we're doing a lot <clears throat> of work in that area right now on all of the broad competencies you need in order to be able to live, work, you know, work, be happy, be civically engaged are all in the areas of creativity and innovation and citizenship and, you know, understanding your health and in uh, all the sort of social-emotional skills, back to what you said about, you know, how we know such so much more about how brains work. And that's the work that 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 is really vital in schools because we are preparing kids for life so it's not just for like the facts of life yes home economics in some ways but it's also to have the capacity especially to keep on learning to solve really complex problems to use your imagination to understand you know uh, other people and relationships those are the competencies that you need in order to, you know, be an adult and be here, you know, here. successful in the world. And what happens when then, again, we, we either say it's all about uh, the homework or all about the EQAO scores, or then we're, we miss those things. And it's hard for uh, board schools, teachers, to focus on those broader areas if the push and the drive is to, no, 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 you've got to get your scores up in math, and you've got to do that before you do anything else. And that's a... It's skewing the kind of purpose of education. Here, here. Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. Always a great chat. Thanks for this. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. A lot of disappointment uh, so far this summer with regards to the Waterfront Trail. I mean, this is one of the jewels of our city um, a, a beautiful a natural space uh, that's used down at the waterfront. Uh, but, you know, those huge rains and the, and the rise in the lake levels uh, caused a lot of flooding uh, in the spring, as you're aware. And uh, there is no guarantee at this point that the Waterfront Trail by Bayfront uh, Park and Princess Point will reopen this year due to uncertainty over the extent of the flood damage. Now, you know, the waters have receded. Uh, you can go down there. You'll you'll you will notice that the the water levels are higher just about anywhere uh, that you uh, go and stand by the water. You'll notice that the the water levels are higher. It's a problem they've had uh, in the beaches in Toronto as well, um, and in in a lot of places. I guess the the problem now is that they have to carefully evaluate uh, what exactly the extent of that flood damage is, and the city has a responsibility to 
you know, try to look after the, the, the taxpayer's safety too. You know, it's uh, city property. Uh, they don't want anything untoward to happen to you. So they're, they're, they play it cautiously. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, they put up fences, signs. Some people are trespassing and going against, uh, you know, the advice of uh, those that would say, hey, stay out of there till we figure out exactly what's going on. You know, it's only going to take one goofball to climb the fence, go around and find themselves sucked into a sinkhole. And then everybody will go, oh, well, I guess there was a problem. Uh, joining me on the line to uh, discuss this is Karen Bunn, manager of parks and cemeteries for the city of Hamilton. Karen, thanks for your time today. Hi. Hi. Karen, uh, give us an update on where things are at, uh, please, with uh, regards to uh, figuring out uh, the extent of the flood damage on the waterfront trail. Well, right now, even though the water has receded somewhat, there's still some portions of the trail that are underwater. Uh, So we're still waiting for that to clear. Um, Then we need to go in, do some more remedial effort to clean up the debris. A lot of trees are down right now. making parts of the trail impassable. So after that's all cleaned up, we can get in there. We'll have, um, we've engaged an engineer, shore plan engineering. They will be looking at um, design solutions to make the repairs. And in those design solutions, we'll be looking at interim plans as well as long-term plans. And I'm, uh, obviously those long-term plans would, uh, would include preventing similar damage from occurring in the future should those water levels rise again. Absolutely. We've been seeing a lot of um, issues with, with the water being so high. Um, as soon as we get a lot of wind, we get erosion. So we need to beef up the shoreline and ensure that um, we don't get any more erosion. And that's really the issue, isn't it, is, is erosion. And, and, it's, and it's difficult to see the extent of, of erosion, um, you know, below the surface of the, uh, the pathway itself. Um, that's why you need engineers to go in and I don't know what they do. They poke around in there and they figure out, um, you know, the, the, the level of support that that pavement has, for example, on the trail and uh, are able to determine whether it'll hold. Absolutely, that's correct. Yeah. So um, uh, at this point, uh, do we have any kind of a timeline on on when this you know, uh, evaluative work will be completed and, and, uh, is it likely that we might see the trail open at all this year? We can't say at this point because it's quite an involved process. Um, it's not a matter of just getting engineer drawings before they can even do the engineer drawings. There's a lot of surveys that have to happen. Um, so all of that takes time, uh, without having an idea of those timelines, um, and how long that'll take because we still have to wait for the water to recede. We can't really say. Yeah, it's an arduous process, isn't it? It's uh, just one of those things that, uh, unfortunately, you can't just go in and uh, on a weekend with a backhoe and uh, a couple, uh, uh, you know, trailers full of dirt kind of backfill and say, here you go, you're you're all set. Absolutely, because we have to work with other um, permissions and authorities. So we'll be working closely with HCA and um, which is the Conservation Authority and uh, DFO, the Department of Fisheries. Um, we need permits and stuff in place before we can do any shoreline work. Yeah, it's big, big, big bureaucracy, and 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 for good reason. When you when you think about the different categories of uh, departments that you kind of mentioned there, there's there's you know there's a, a good reason for. Uh, doing it properly, being um, detailed, and getting it right, right? 
Absolutely. There's environmental concerns that need to be taken into consideration. And it's not just about the trail. It's about the stability of the environment as well. So um, by um, talking to the experts, we'll make sure that we're doing it properly. Karen, do you guys, Kara, do you guys ever uh, compare notes with other municipalities? I mean, you know, for example, Toronto has, has been in the same, has been in a similar boat with flooding in the beaches and uh, on the island. I mean, I, I don't even know whether Center Island is been able to open for the most part to uh, tourists this summer. Uh, do you ever compare notes with other municipalities and share information? Um, I haven't been in contact recently with anybody, but we have um, spoken in length with um, the Conservation Authority with a lot of their properties, and they're experiencing some of the same um, issues. So um, there are conversations going on. There. Are there other areas of our city that uh, that you're also working on that, that people may not be aware are, are under... Uh, uh, duress at this point uh, because of flooding? Um, we've had some erosion issues. So one of our trails have, has eroded, and it's when you put a trail along the escarpment, there's a lot of uh, water runoff there. So we've had some erosion issues in that area as well on the rail trail. Um, and also over at uh, Confederation Park and, and that beachfront trail, we've had erosion over there as well and uh, a few other small locations. At Confederation, are there any sections that are closed, or is it is it wide open at this point? It's open. The um, path wasn't uh, badly damaged there, so we were able to keep it open. All right. Kara Bunn, Manager of Parks and Cemeteries for the City of Hamilton. Thanks for uh, the update. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jamie. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Incomes in Hamilton and Burlington have remained relatively flat over the past decade, while the price of a detached home in the region has risen 40%. Uh, that's great if you own a home. Uh, lots of equity. Uh, median, uh, the median income across Hamilton's census area, which includes Burlington, was $77,800 in 2015, according to new data from Statistics Canada's uh, Canadian Income Survey and Survey of Labor and Income Dynamics. Wow, there's a mouthful. Uh, that number has remained relatively flat since 2006, when the median income uh, was at 79700 uh, in the same time period, the median price of a detached home sold in the region rose 40% to $350,000 in 2015, up from two forty nine nine in 2006, according to the Realtors Association of Hamilton and Burlington. And joining us on the line now is Lou Piriano. The numbers help paint a picture of the uh, health of uh, local household finances at a time when uh, housing prices and rents have have risen dramatically in in recent years. What what are you finding uh, in in the world of real estate locally? Um, you know, is income level uh, having a, an effect on the real estate market? Yeah, I don't know what's going on here, Jamie. Are uh, people getting up in the middle of the night and robbing banks to make their mortgage payment? Is that what's going on? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I hope not. Um, um, what's I, no, let, let me comment. I, I did read the 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 forty percent uh, you know raise in the rise in prices since two thousand and six. But let me ask you this: if I if I had told you that I'm going to reduce your car payments by sixty six percent and your food bill by sixty six percent, do you think you could probably live with a flat income? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So here's so here's what the interest rate was in 2006 when they began the survey and they they quote these prices. The interest rate was seven percent at that time. Mm-hmm. Now the interest rate is two and a half. Yeah. 
so it, it makes a big difference. The same payment uh, on our hypothetical that they used in there, say a $350,000 mortgage, uh, that payment is 1583 today. And if we were back in uh, in 2006, it would have been 2451. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you've got to look. Uh, you got to look at all all of the uh, the numbers, don't you, to to get a true a true picture of things. Um, but there's a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people with with money coming from outside this area into this area. Is that not still the case? You're getting people buying uh, who are from the GTA being forced out of that area that they can't afford into our area and they say to themselves i can get twice as much house here for the same amount of money yeah there's some of that going on um but um you know i if you're re- looking for a reason why they can afford like the cbc article that, that you quoted uh you know prices up 40 percent in uh, 11 years and income flat uh that's what i'm trying to address here and uh so i think it'd probably be the same for the toronto people in a relative basis um they're still coming here, but you know what? Um, in these uh, times of uh, boom and bust uh, sort of mentalities where uh, people say, hey, if I can afford one near home, I'll stay near home. And right now, as you probably know, uh, the, the consumer demand is down uh, slightly. And um, not so much that the, the sales are down. They're, they're pretty much the same as they have been, uh, relatively speaking. But the number of listings is up tremendously. And when the number of listings is up, it means consumers have choice and they have bargaining power. So a few months ago, when I was telling people that if you're selling your house, you better get it out there because it's a really good time and you never know. Um, well, now I'm saying the same thing for buyers. This is a really good time. And uh, we may just be taking a pause like they did in B.C. And maybe things will be coming back, uh, you know, come, come the fall. So if you're a buyer, get out there. It's very, very affordable, especially Hamilton, as you pointed out. And uh, the competition isn't near as stiff as it was from the Toronto buyers coming in because they have the same situation there where now they can afford and they have some choice in Toronto. So, hey, why don't we stick close to home? Yeah, Lou, what has the uh, bump in uh, interest rates uh, done uh, for the market? I would imagine uh, it could be a two-fold thing. It's either stimulating uh, people to get into the market or it's scaring people. Which is it? Well, the lenders I've talked to are saying it's, it's not really. You know, they have a 120-day rate guarantee in some cases. Yeah. And, uh, so they're, they're still out there. But, and a quarter point doesn't really do all that much. What is a greater concern and much greater concern is mortgage rules that are being contemplated for the fall. Right now, if you have 20% down or more, you can qualify to carry your mortgage at whatever the rate the lender is giving you. For example, 2.5%. But come the fall, they're, t- they're talking about making that you have to qualify for the same mortgage at prime plus 2%, which would be about 4.89 right now. Big difference in trying to qualify for a mortgage at 25 and 4.89. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, Hamilton Burlington still uh, bucking the trend, right, nationally. Uh, when you look at national numbers, we're, we're still we're identified as a market here that's uh, bucking the trend of declining declining sales well you know cmhc has always as long as far back as i can remember uh, doing their economic reports saying that we are just so well positioned from a employment point of view between you know uh, close to the border close to toronto uh, i don't uh, you know we just don't ever see that ending i mean uh, it's just getting better and better for the people of hamilton and burlington all right, Lou Piriano, uh, president of the Realtors Association of uh, Hamilton Burlington. Thanks for uh, spending a few minutes with us today. I appreciate it. 
Great. I'll try and get a better phone line. For no, you. You, you were you were per, you were perfect. Once we got you on the handset, everything was good. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Lou. Take care. Bye bye. Nine zero five six four five three two two one or star nine nine hundred if you want into the conversation. Uh, love to hear from you. Let's go to uh, Anthony Passarelli, senior market analyst uh, with the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Anthony, thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So the Hamilton Burlington market is it is it true what the Lou Piriano says there that you you guys have consistently said that we're positioned great here uh, to to have a a strong housing market. Well, we we've typically yes have uh, you know we do a forecast in the fall for the following year, so we'll be putting on a new forecast in uh, late October for 2018. Typically, we especially the last few years we've been very positive about Hamilton. Um, in terms of uh, demand for homes, a lot of that driven by the uh, low mortgage rates and also the sort of what we call a spillover effect from Toronto, where uh, we've seen many more people move from the GTA to Hamilton region because the houses in uh, GTA are too expensive. Yeah, so you've got that combined with uh, uh, still uh, historically low interest rates um, making uh, homes affordable even if the prices are up 40% over a period of time, right? That's right. So, well, the affordability is is a relative term, but uh, prices are growing at a very fast clip in Hamilton, and in some cases you see that growing a lot faster than, I guess, what we would call fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So that would be uh, factors such as the you know employment, population growth, uh, wage growth. There, there is strength in those factors in Hamilton, especially this year. We've seen employment numbers come out uh, very positively. Population growth is is quite strong because again that migration thing. But prices are growing at a much faster clip than that in the region. So is that again? Is that people keep talking about bubbles, 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 and bubbles bursting? We haven't, we really haven't seen that. The government took some moves to try and cool the market, and it looks like it may have had a that effect. Would you agree with that? Uh, what effect would that be? Sorry, the the government took moves to try and cool uh, the housing market um, by putting their their new rules in place, and. It looks as though some of that's working. Would you not agree with that? Well, it's very inconclusive that when the government makes these changes to um, how borrowers can qualify for mortgages, and et cetera. The, the ones that came into effect in October, we actually saw shortly following that uh, an increase in demand, which is a bit counterintuitive. Uh, so it's a bit inconclusive. But uh, in recent months, we have seen demand slow down a bit. In the region, uh, a little bit, uh, it's held up a better than in, say, a market like Toronto. But, um, and again, I think that's just driven yeah. by the fact that the homes here are still relatively affordable, especially to the people that will be migrating from the GTA. Uh, and also the fact that some of those fundamentals are good, such as the employment side. It's hard to tell, too, if people got spooked by. Um, you know, the idea that if they go into the market to purchase a home, they're going to be locked up in a bidding war and people just get weary of that and say, forget it. Like, we'll just stay put. I don't want to get into a bidding war and pay 150000 over asking and then have to go find something uh, or, or buy some or have to sell our home. And, you know, it, it becomes one of those things where I think the market 
might get weary. Would you agree with that? And then people just sort of take a break and 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 regroup. That may have happened again. It, it's difficult to point to one factor. We tend to look at a number of them, but I, I would say in recent months you've seen a lot more listings on the market. So it has opened up for more buyers so they have more choice uh fewer homes are going to bidding wars versus yeah. earlier in the year like in the first three months so uh buyers may have sat back a bit and we've seen a lot more listings come on the market so the conditions i think have changed a bit in the last couple months where buyers i think are, are in a better position to uh, set some terms and conditions on their offers and people are paying their mortgages right uh uh, Anthony, we're not seeing people uh, failing to make their mortgage payments or anything like that. They're not they're not overstretched that much. Well, that's well. In terms of the payments, we have seen uh, very positive data come out on sort of very low uh, rates of default on mortgages, uh, making payments on time. Like you said, the level of debt that people are holding though is at a high level. You see the the numbers that come out of say Statistics Canada every month on debt to income ratio and it is sitting at a high level it is a, it is a risk like we flag it as a risk to the market we haven't seen anything happen as a result of that yet but it is something to be weary about uh and and again we probably have seen that affect why prices are are rising at such a fast clip at hamilton is because people are with the low rates buying um uh taking on a quite a large mortgage all right, Anthony Passarelli, Senior Market Analyst, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.